When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. I feel like I should start this sermon with a TV voiceover and montage previously on Elena Preaches at Bethany, because at the end of October, I preached from the beginning of this chapter in Luke 1, where Zechariah is told by an angel in the temple that his wife Elizabeth will give birth to John the Baptist. This is just a little bit later in the same chapter, and Elizabeth is pregnant. For most of my life, I've heard this moment between Elizabeth and Mary in the Christmas story as just a little too precious. Like it's a a double baby shower moment and they're like, oh, you're so blessed. No, you're so blessed. No, seriously, you are like the most blessed among women. Oh, thank you. And then Mary sings the Magnificat, as you do. But one day I had this light bulb moment where I'm looking at the text and I realized, oh my gosh, this story passes the Bechdel test. And for those unfamiliar, the Bechdel test is based on a 1985 comic strip by Alison Bechdel, and it is used as a way to measure the presence of women in films and media. In order to pass the Bechdel test, The film must have at least one scene where two or more women with names, so they can't just be like, you know, party guest number three, okay? So at least two women with names talk to each other about something other than a man. That's it. So hypothetically, if there's a movie with a scene where one woman says, oops, did I just kick your foot under the table, Jill? And Jill responds, no problem, Barbara, can you pass the mashed potatoes? That imaginary and obviously Oscar-nominated film that I just wrote, it passes the Bechdel test. Easy peasy lemon squeezy. And yet, it is horrifying how many movies trip over that unbelievably low bar of representation and utterly fail to pass. Over half of the Oscar winners for Best Picture spanning a century fail the Bechdel test. And yet the Bible, this ancient text, passes. And even though the Bible only needs this one scene between Elizabeth and Mary in order to pass, the Bible has at least six passing moments in Mark and Luke and Ruth, of course, Ruth, like the whole book. And these moments where named women talk to each other about something other than a man are in addition to the nearly 150 scenes in the Bible with two or more women and over 250 scenes where women speak and 14 where women speak to each other. And that's only counting the moments where characters are expressly identified as female. There are many times, many times, that biblical characters subvert gender conformity and invite conversations and questions around what it might 
around what we might know today as non-binary and trans expressions within the text. I met Sheila just shy of 10 years ago. Sheila was somewhere between my mother's age and my grandmother's age. We were both volunteers during a prayer retreat. After spending four or five hours on a Saturday afternoon in rooms next door to each other, praying for people in 15-minute sessions, Sheila and her husband walked into our room to check in with me and my assigned prayer partner. Sheila and her husband had traveled from several states away to volunteer because prayer was their passion. I had volunteered like very last minute when someone on the planning team roped me in because they were short on volunteers. Sheila asked if we'd like to end the day by all praying for each other. And as the trio prayed for me, Sheila paused her prayer and said, Elena, I sense a boldness in you. At that time, we were all part of a denomination that I grew up in that did not ordain women. While the church I was attending had started to push the envelope by having women on the elder board, and we had an egalitarian pastor, I knew that Sheila's more conservative Southern congregation did not have any women in leadership at all. And so when Sheila said, I sense a boldness in you, I really wasn't sure where this was headed. And she continued, are you familiar with Deborah in the Old Testament? All I remembered was that Deborah was a judge. And Sheila quickly recapped for me that Deborah was a judge and a prophet. And when Israel was threatened with certain doom, she told Barak, the leader of Israel's army, to go to battle because God had promised victory. And he said, I'll go, but only if you go with me. And Deborah agreed to go and then added that because Barak hadn't believed her, that the enemy's commander would be delivered into the hands of a woman. The way that Sheila told Deborah's story made us all chuckle. Then Sheila concluded by saying, My sense, Elena, is that you are a Deborah and that your boldness comes from a deep confidence in what God speaks to your heart. And I want to affirm that and pray now for how God will use that boldness in your life. Her prayer is a deeply meaningful moment for me. Sheila and I didn't have a close relationship like Elizabeth and Mary. We'd only just met. But we did have a shared context that really deepened the impact of her words. In that small room, I felt like I was witnessing a woman from an older generation filled with the Holy Spirit offering me an empowering affirmation and blessing. Luke says that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit when she affirms Mary, saying, Blessed are you among women. And interestingly, in this moment, Elizabeth is also using the story of Deborah as a lens to extend her blessing to Mary. Deborah is introduced in Judges as Deborah, a prophet, wife of Lapidoth, who was leading the nation of Israel at the time. That's a pretty incredible intro. 
but it gets even better because the word being translated as wife is actually just the Hebrew word for woman that translators are trying to use context to ascertain the intended meaning of. Deborah, a prophet, and woman of Lapidoth. However, the word Lapidoth is never used as a person's name anywhere else. And Deborah, having a husband, is never referenced. The word Lapidoth means torches in Hebrew, or fire. So a more literal translation of the text that isn't presupposing that she is married would be Deborah, woman of flames, or Deborah, a prophet and fiery woman, was leading the nation of Israel. Even if the text isn't meant to be read this literally, it is still likely an intentional play on words. Deep layers of meaning like this are very common in Hebrew scripture. Something that Sheila's recap missed is that Deborah isn't the only woman in this story. After Deborah leads the army to victory, the enemy commander, Sisera, jumps down off his chariot and flees and comes upon the tent of Yael. Judges give us some background on Yael, who is married into the tribes of Israel. And we know that where she comes from is in Africa, and it's important to name that because it is unfortunately much more common for characters in the Bible to be acknowledged. Hmm. Deborah is introduced in Judges as Deborah, a prophet, wife of Lapidoth, who was leading the nation of Israel at the time. That's a pretty incredible intro. But it gets even better because the word being translated as wife is actually just the Hebrew word for woman that translators are trying to use context to ascertain the intended meaning of. Deborah, a prophet, and woman of Lapidoth. However, the word Lapidoth is never used as a person's name anywhere else. And Deborah having a husband is never referenced outside of this phrase. The word Lapidoth means torches in Hebrew or fire. So a more literal translation of the text that isn't presupposing that she is married would be Deborah, a woman of flames, or Deborah, a prophet and fiery woman, was leading the nation of Israel. Even if the text isn't meant to be read this literally, it is still likely an intentional play on words because deep layers of meaning like this are very common in Hebrew scripture. Something that Sheila's recap missed is that Deborah isn't the only woman in this story. After Deborah leads the army to victory, the enemy commander, Sisera, jumps down off his chariot and flees and comes upon the tent of Yael. Judges gives us some background on Yael, who has married into the tribes of Israel. And we know that where she comes from is in Africa. And it's important to name that because it is unfortunately much more common for characters in the Bible to be whitewashed than for the very real and wonderful black characters in the Bible to be acknowledged and celebrated as black. 
Dr. Jessica Chapman Lape says that source citing is a justice issue because all too often the first people to become quoted as anonymous will be women of color. So Cicero runs away and approaches Yael's tent and she immediately puts a plan into action. She invites him in and she, when he asks for water, she gives him milk and he becomes sleepy and she tucks him in on the ground and he's nice and cozy. And when he falls asleep, she goes full Tarantino on him and takes a tent peg and drives it through his skull into the ground. Sisera was indeed delivered into the hands of a woman, Yael's hands. It is an intense and violent and powerful scene. A foreign black woman saves all of Israel. Afterward, Deborah sings a victory song and she lifts up the story of Yael. Now to pause for a moment, some will argue that this doesn't pass the Bechdel test because Deborah and Yael don't speak to each other, but come on, Deborah is singing this publicly and she obviously got the details from her. So for me, I'm giving it a pass. We're up to seven, okay? Eat your heart out, Aaron Sorkin. And it also passes an inclusivity spinoff test, the DuVernay test which measures the representation of people of color by asking if they have fully realized lives rather than merely serving as scenery in white stories. In her song, Deborah repeats that Sisera fell down, was struck down, he descended. She repeats that several times as a juxtaposition to the meaning of Yael's name, which is one who ascends. Deborah is singing out and lifting up Yael, the one who ascends, and Deborah declares, most blessed of women be Yael. Did you hear it? Most blessed of women. Blessed are you among women. That's what Elizabeth says to Mary. This isn't a phrase that's too precious. It is a phrase reserved for women who have saved Israel. In addition to Yael and Mary, this phrase is only used one other time in Hebrew scripture in the apocryphal story of Judith. Once again, an army is positioned to obliterate Israel. The town's water has been cut off for 34 days and the leaders know they have five days left and they're contemplating surrender, which would mean worshiping Nebuchadnezzar. Enter Judith, stage right, a pious widow who basically says, you think there's a problem bigger than God? I'll be back in five days. Hold my beer. And Judith and her female servant trick their way into the enemy camp for five days. And on the last day, the commander gets drunk and falls asleep. And while her servant keeps watch, Judith beheads him with two blows of his own sword. 
and they sneak back into the camp where the people of Israel declare that Judith is blessed among women. The story makes a point to end by saying that Judith had many offers to remarry and she refused them all. Judith is the only woman in, in scripture without children who actively chooses to not get married. And she's also the only woman in scripture who has another woman in charge of her estate. The queer interpretations of Judith's story are certainly reasonable and because she is not solely defined by her sexuality or gender identity, and because she is integral to the story's plot, you can make a great argument that the story of Judith passes the Vito Russo test for LGBTQ representation. We have historically put a spotlight on Mary in the Christmas story, and well-deservedly, but there are stories in the shadows of Mary's story. Stories in the shadows of that spotlight that are also meant to be known. They help us understand the story we are being told. We are meant to hear the echoes of Deborah's song in the words of Elizabeth. Mary understands who Elizabeth is declaring she is, one who saves Israel, because she knows who Yael is. The stories of Yael and Judith stand next to Mary's, expanding the picture of what being blessed among women looks like. It includes motherhood, but is not confined to it. This blessing is beyond gender stereotypes or roles. These women were unmarried, married, virgins, widows, young, old, surprised by pregnancy, finally pregnant after waiting a lifetime, and actively choosing to not have children. They are black and brown. They are wise and judicious. They are military strategists and brave assassins. They are impatient and cunning and independent, and they are also extremely patient and grief-stricken and angry. They make their homes with men and with women and with torches. They embrace one another. They stand guard for each other, and they sing loud when one of them is victorious. These stories in the shadows expand our picture of women, but they also expand our picture of God. Because God is always found in the shadows and in the margins. Because God identifies with the oppressed. Each of these stories ends with a time of peace being ushered in. For Judith, it says there was peace for the rest of her lifetime and many years passed. For Deborah and Yael, there was peace for 40 years. For perspective, America has never had peace for 40 years. We are lucky if we have had 15 years between wars and conflicts. And for Elizabeth and Mary, it was the birth 
of the one we call Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. Mary details that peace in the victory song that she sings. Mary details that peace in the victory song she sings in the Magnificat. A peace where rulers and wealth are taken down and the humble are lifted up. Sheila's prayer a decade ago is meaningful to me, not because it's proof of who I am, but because it remains an invitation to me to recognize that I'm allowed to be more than someone expects. And sure, I, I would love to be a woman of flames. But perhaps more importantly to me, I want to commit to exploring the shadows and singing the victories of women of color and declaring them blessed in a world that so often erases or takes credit for their contributions. I want to be deeply curious about what contexts are missing and what ideas of normalcy I am imposing on others unwittingly. I want to be aware of the battles I am called to fight and the conversations I am called to have, battling my own complacency to build the kingdom of God. To be likened to Deborah feels less like a blessing and more like a commissioning, a commissioning to be deeply committed to the ascension and lifting up of the Yaels around me. And this beautiful invitation that I once was given, I now give to you. Bethany, I sense a boldness in you. This Advent, come, come into the shadows. Come and see where God has been waiting for us. When you go, go with this blessing. Go forth to recognize beauty in the shadows, to raise up the stories that have gone unheard and the spirits that have gone uncelebrated, and to hold, birth, and nurture the mystery of God's presence that ushers in peace. Amen.